Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. We are recording this a week from when you hear it, which is always the case for Dear Hank and John. Uh, that seems especially important to note right now as things are bad in America right now. And, you know, we're in the midst of sort of uh, of, of dual crises of COVID-19 and also pushing back against the violence that has been done and is being done to black people by institutional forces. And so we don't know what the world looks like right now, but we are hoping very much uh, when you hear this, that it that it looks better, um, but obviously worried that it does not. Yeah, and one more thing I want to say about this, Hank, is that I often feel like the political and social and historical context that white people bring to this crisis is inadequate. And that's true for me, certainly. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also yeah. true for many people I know. One example of this among many is that most white people have never even heard of the red summer of 1919 when state-sanctioned violence against black people and protests against it occurred alongside a global disease pandemic. And so when a story is in the news, it's really relatively easy to pay attention to it. It's, it's easy to make statements about it and, and mm -hmm. statements in support of, of protesters. And I think that's very important. But I also think it's important to pay sustained, ongoing attention because long-term problems demand long-term solutions. They demand that we make changes within ourselves and within our systems, not just over one day, but over an entire lifetime and over many human lifetimes. And that's the commitment that we need to make to each other and especially to people who have been disenfranchised and oppressed by the systems of power in the United States. And that is the work of a lifetime, but let it be the work of our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, here's the podcast. This first question is from Anonymous, who asks, Dear Hank and John, my mom has depression. It's bad at the moment, and she needs support. It's the first time I'm supporting her with something rather than her supporting me through stuff. I'm not sure how to phrase a question on this, but I could do with some general advice, Anonymous. Um, first of all, this is lovely to understand and to be in those moments and those transitions where 
it goes from an entirely one-way relationship to being uh to being an a, a kind of adult relationship where you need each other and you know that you are needed um and so that it's a big step and um and to be aware of it is is uh is the first important thing yeah i mean i i can only speak from my own experience of living with depression but in depressive instances in my life, a lot of the support that I've benefited from, I mean, first off, I've benefited from somebody asking me how I'm, how I'm doing that day, that minute, Mm -hmm. and not judging my answer, Mm -hmm. not judging Mm -hmm. me for being in, in pain. I think it's important to understand that, that depression, while it can look like just malaise, um, is often accompanied by very intense psychic pain. That's very, very difficult to manage. And that's part of why you, or at least in my case, part of why I I, I tend to retreat from the world when it's happening. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that I've found most helpful is when someone will help me navigate the labyrinthine bureaucracies that it is necessary to navigate in order to get good and consistent care. That's so hard to do when I'm unwell. It's so hard to like make follow-up appointments and it's, and figure out where the, place is and figure out what which pharmacy is which and when are generics all these questions and if you can just have somebody who's there with you it's somebody you can trust so that you know that what they're you know that the advice that they're giving you at least comes from a place of love even if it doesn't always make sense to you mm-hmm. i find that really helpful because it is overwhelming to try to get help especially because when you're really depressed or I, again, when I am, I feel like it won't matter. I feel like help doesn't matter. Like it's not going to work. Yeah. You know, and I, and I, I believe that as, as, as firmly as I believe anything else, it seems as true to me as any other truth. Now, the actual truth is that it will help or that it may help. And that over time, trying a bunch of different treatment strategies, eventually it's very likely, very probable that something will help and that I will recover, but I don't feel Mm -hmm. that way. And so having someone in my life who can consistently say, and for me, it's Sarah, having someone in my life who can consistently say, we're going to get through this, like not you're going to get through this, but we're going to get through this. And I'm going to, I'm going to take you to the doctor and I'm going to follow up about the prescriptions. And I'm going to help you remember that it's twice a day after morning and after dinner. And that stuff really helps me. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that like knowing that you're a part of something, um, you know, you're part of this family unit, a part of a community, whatever that, whatever that the, the unit of that is. Um, and so that's really about like showing up and being there. And, you know, if you can, in in a way, be needed in simple ways, and, and also if you can show them that you need them in simple ways. And, you know, it, it might be like, hey, can you help me with this this task I want to do? Like, I want to write letters. Um, and so can you help me write some letters to people? Because I am I want to, you know, do this craft activity or this experiment or something um, to inv- involve them with that. I've, I find that, you know, a big path forward for me is um, is just conversation if, if you can get to that point. And it's not like it's not like a cure all. It's not like it makes it better immediately, but in that moment it can be better and that can show that there there might be a better somewhere down the line. 
Yeah. Like recently, Sarah, a few weeks ago, Sarah was like, do you want to play tennis? <laughs> and I was like, do you mean, do I want to get in a car and go to a park <laughs> and play tennis? No. Of course I don't want to play tennis. And she was Deeply like, no. she was like, we're going to go play tennis. And honestly, like I didn't feel better afterwards, but I did feel mm -hmm. better while playing tennis. Like, yeah. And that's something. Right, right. You know, and and so, uh -huh. yeah, you just have to yeah. look for those moments and understand that slowly you'll string together more of them. Yeah. This morning, you know, I, I you know, I think I've been operating with something of a, you know, D diminished capacity, diminished emotional feelings right now. And this morning I, you know, I, I worked out a little bit um, and I didn't want to, and I hated the whole time getting ready to, and then I did it and I felt better while I was doing it. And then immediately afterward, the, you know, world came crashing back down and I felt bad again, um, but I didn't feel worse. I just felt bad again. And there was that period in there when I didn't feel bad because I was concentrating on my body, which is a thing that I do need to take care of no matter what. Um, you know, I've been having fair, a few different body problems um, recently and uh, don't need to get into details, but to, you know, like to know that I, and in, in part that's because I haven't, I've been too, you know, stressed out uh, and busy trying to sort of like adapt my life to new circumstances and my business to new circumstances to, to take care of it. And so I, you know, knowing that there are things that I can spend time on that are positive, even if I don't want to do them, and having the people in my life to get me to do them is is really valuable. Yeah. This question comes from OF, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I just listened to your episode where you discussed when it's okay to call a professor by their first name, and I agree with your conclusion, <laughs> but you left out something important. What happens when a professor signs an email with their initials? What and why is that? Hmm. Hank, uh -huh. I have a confession to make, uh -oh. which is that for many years, I signed emails with my initials. <laughs> I know why I did this. I did it okay. to seem... We have, an, we have a report from the inside. Here's the report from the inside. I did it to seem formal and to seem fancy, but also to seem busy and dashed uh -huh. off like oh mm -hmm. yeah I, I don't have time to write a whole name right now j-o-h-n yeah that's why, huge why not write j-m-g which, which saves me one entire keystroke oh, and you put the middle initial in of course wow. i put the middle initial in wow oh so, gosh that is so flash forward about six months after i start doing this mm -hmm. my wonderful late great friend amy cross rosenthal publishes a book in which she writes about how, in her experience, <laughs> people, oh, no. people are just a little bit self-important when they start signing off their emails with their initials. <laughs> God, this is amazing. And I was like, oh, man, I've oh, really, I've, I really feel uh, seen, not in the good way, but in the helpful way. And that was the last day that I signed my emails with my initials. <laughs> you got it. Yeah. It's nice to have a way to communicate with your friends. That is really, it's, it is the, that is the ultimate subtweet. Just like, <laughs> so like in print forever. <laughs> well, yeah. The and I don't, Congress I, now. I don't know for sure that she was referencing me, but. Oh, I do. Yeah, exactly. 
Because it was also in that period of my life where I also fancied myself very busy. Mm -hmm. And so she was she was calling me out for something that I was guilty of, but she was doing it in a lovely and funny and kind-hearted way. Yeah. And my uh, life is better for it. Absolutely. Yes. You were told you were told that there was something in your teeth, but um through through space and time. Yeah. And uh in a loving way. Yeah. So don't sign your initials. I mean, unless you love your initials, I don't know. But just know that it's going to sound self-important to some people. <laughs> Especially with the middle initial. I often don't use my name at all. Um, and I feel that this, uh, that this is a, uh, I don't know, this is a bit much. Yeah. And, I, and a bit of a signal of my, I'm so busy, I can't even write my name. Yeah. But, so something else I've noticed, Hank, while we're criticizing you, is that oh, okay. sometimes you sign with just H, which is actually the worst. I do do that. So that I do do that. So just so you know, and I... <laughs> I'm not saying that I read this question so that I could tell you that story about Amy oh, gosh. so that I could offer uh -huh. you this advice. But when right, you Right, cuz I didn't even consider that you were you were pointing this at me because uh, to me a single initial is not is completely different from initials. It is completely different in that it's worse. Like <laughs> if you just sign H, what that says to me is I am so busy. I am on a totally different level from you busyness-wise. I can't write a second letter in my name. That's how busy I am. That's how important uh, I am. I'm H important. I'm the only H you know. You know who this H is. <laughs> well, the other strange thing about it is that like if you want to know who the email is from, it's not like I've I'm like actually helping you know where the email is coming from. Right. You are I I think I assume aware. Yeah, so what I'm recommending, Hank, is that you sign your emails, best wishes, comma, return Hank. Just Hank, not Or even Hank just, Green. just return Hank. I think, you, I think you write Hank Green if you're writing to someone you don't know well, and I think you write Hank if you're writing to me. <laughs> mm, okay. All right. Okay. Well, I will, take, I will take this advice under advisement, and I'm sure we'll retain it for at least a week. Before yeah, well, I forget. wait till I publish my new book. Then you'll then you'll change for good. <laughs> John, just so you know, my neighbor, yep, is mowing his lawn. So okay. that's happening, and it's the situation that we live in. Uh, Lou asks, "Dear Hank and John, it is well known that the country of Italy is shaped like a boot. So recently, I was wondering what shoe size it would be if it was a real boot. Unfortunately, I couldn't find the answer on the internet. That is shocking to me. Yeah, I wear size six shoes, Lou." That I cannot believe that we don't know what size boot Italy is. That is unacceptable. <laughs> so we know the approximate size of the boot. Do we? Um, yeah. Well, okay. So Hank, we know, I think, the approximate size of the shoe in question. Okay. Because if you look at the if you look at a map of Italy, there's a heel to the boot. Mm-hmm. And that heel is, I think, the giveaway. Because we don't know how far up the boot goes, right? It could be knee length. It could go all the way up to your thighs. Sure, sure, yeah. The, I mean, the, yeah, shoe size isn't about where it goes. It's about... Right. It's about, it's about the foot part. Yeah. And my argument is that that's about a four-inch heel. I don't think it's like an eight-inch heel. Because there's not like a huge platform to the foot part of the foot. So I would argue that's a four-inch heel. In which case, by my rough calculations, that is an American size eight and a half shoe. 
No, John, I think you're deeply misunderstanding both how heels work and how shoe sizes work. I'm not, you... I'm not misunderstanding how either. <laughs> I'm about to, I am ready to die on this hill. What, wait. Uh, what we you, have to know you... is how big the boot is. What do you mean we have to know how big the boot is? We have to know how far it is from the toe to the heel. That's yes. the size of the shoe. Yes, but we can't. Or, yeah, I, 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 I realize that, Hank. <laughs> it's to, it's from it's the size of the shoe isn't from where the toe to the to the the heel, meaning the the spiked heel. It's to where the human's heel. Like if there was a giant who put on Italy, yes, how big would that giant's feet be? It would not be size eight and a half. He'd fall right over. No. So what you need is the distance no, from you've, Bari no. oh, to Reggio no, no, Calabria. No, no, you've completely misunderstood. First off, Italy, Hank, and I, I know this is going to come as a, as a surprise to you, is not actually a boot. Okay? This is the question, John. Yes. Read me the question again, because I am 100% correct. I'm, I'm about to get in a fight. Well, we, <laughs> there's a lot of tension in the room. I was wondering what shoe size... Italy would be if it were a real boot. Yes. Is what Lou asks. Right. I so if there was a boot mm -hmm. with that that from where the the that was the size of Italy, mm -hmm. what size would it be? Okay, so I think we have a different understanding of the phrase real boot. Yeah, no, a real boot the size of Italy with a 440 kilometer heel to toe distance. Okay, that is your understanding of the phrase real boot. My my understanding of the phrase real boot is a boot that exists, i.e. a real, if you will, boot. Um, in any case, I figured it out. And the, and the, the boot, the size of Italy would be size around 17 million. Okay. Roughly. Okay. Between 10 and 20 million would be the size. But if, the that, size. if that's a four-inch heel, Italy's about an eight and a half. Okay. I like I like that we had two different approaches and we both came to very clear definite definitions. But I do need Lou to email us back and ask which one is right. Is yeah, this yeah, a boot Lou, did you want to know the size of Italy? <laughs> <laughs> or is or or right. if you wore a boot yeah, 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 that yeah. was shaped like Italy. Right. It, no, it's a great question, Hank, because like which one is is more relevant? How to make a 17 million inch long <laughs> shoe? We would we spent like a like a half an episode figuring out how to put googly eyes on the moon. Well, first off, you you spent half an episode figuring out how to put googly <laughs> eyes on the moon, and I asked some questions. This next question comes from Haley, who asks, "Dear Hank and John, after watching Greta Gerwig's adaptation of Little Women multiple times, I have come to the conclusion that it is the most seen I have ever felt by a work of fiction. So I was wondering, what is the most seen you have ever felt by a work of fiction? Like the comet, depending on who's pronouncing it." Haley, I assume, and not Hallie, because you didn't really give us or or a pronunciation guide there. Yeah, everybody. It. Yeah, I've heard it. I've heard it both ways. Well, he also ways. spelled it all three ways throughout his lifetime, oh, and other people spelled it all three ways, implying that while Edmund Haley was walking around trying to figure out magnetism on Earth, he himself was not sure of his own surname. <laughs> Which, to me, gets uh, to how weird the yeah. 17th century was. Well, also how, how you know, weird it is now that everything's so standardized that you have to spell your name the same way every time. Yeah. I don't. Sometimes I just write H. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but to, to the question, Hank, what is the most scene you have ever felt 
by a work of fiction. And I should say, I think Rosiana feels the same way about Little Women. I also really liked Little Women, but of course I didn't have that feeling of of being on the inside of it. Um, I don't know if this is an appropriate answer, but Catherine uh, was reading me the uh, qualities of an Enneagram 3 last night. (laughs) Um, And I... I know that like Myers-Briggs and Enneagrams and those sorts of things are, um, you know, it, loosely dot, 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 limited. Yeah, limited. <laughs> That's good. They're limited. But um, but as Catherine sort of went down the attributes of, of like Enneagram 3s at their best and Enneagram 3s at their worst and talking about how like, you know, you can be really effective and efficient, but you can also put, put work first and be a little bit narcissistic. And I was like, mm. okay, stop. I need you to stop. I need you to stop reading about it. I need you to stop, stop telling me about Enneagram 3s. So that's, I felt, I felt deeply seen. And also there were a number of times where it was like suggestions for Enneagram 3s. You need to recognize that your feelings are as or more important than your accomplishments. And I was like, ha, mm. ha, <laughs> They are though. What? And then I cried. Oh, that's good. I'm glad that you're crying. I mean, not I'm not glad, uh, but I think it's appropriate. I think it's appropriate <laughs> that you're crying. I've also, I've, uh, yeah. For me, it's probably the movie Rushmore. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, I went to a boarding school. I was a screw up. I was a screwed up kid. I made a lot of uh, bad choices and benefited from a lot of luck, but more importantly, from a lot of structural privileges. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought that movie captured some of the best and the worst of my high school self. (laughs) That's good. I have completely lost touch with my high school self. It's either that or Looking for Alaska. (laughs) The Looking for Alaska TV show. (laughs) I felt pretty... I don't know if that's fair. Pretty seen. I feel pretty seen by my own work. Well, that that one really, in particular, it was someone else's yeah. work about my work, and somehow mm-hmm. in making it, they made it uh, much more reflective of God. It's so weird of of what my life was like. You know what what yeah. my not just not just the character Pudge, who you know mm-hmm. probably isn't the character I most closely identify with, in some ways, but but not in every way. But just there was something about it that felt very uh, much like Alabama. In those years. Oh, it's so, I mean, I only went to Springs like two or three times, but like, it's uncanny. It 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 feels like they they didn't like rebuild the campus. They rebuilt the feel, you know, like it just feels like it. Yes. It was hard. It was hard to be there because I have never had an experience like that before where I felt, um, yeah. Inside of the past. Yeah. This next question comes from Malcolm, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I'm a high school senior in quarantine, and I spend the vast majority of my time in my basement by myself. My deceased grandfather's guitar has been down here untouched for years, and I was inspired by a previous episode of your podcast. <laughs> I think it's the episode of the podcast where the person was secretly learning to play the fiddle. Yeah. Yeah, Peter. I was inspired by a previous episode of your podcast to secretly learn guitar using my grandfather's old acoustic. I now nice. know the D, A, and E chords so nice. far. Good. What song mm-hmm. should I play for my family to let them know that I have surprisingly learned to play the guitar? It has to be something that they would all recognize. <laughs> Secrets and string instruments, Malcolm. Uh, and it has to be something you can play with just the D, A, and the E. I feel like Malcolm can maybe learn two more chords if necessary. 
Well, if you go in two more chords, then you're basically got it all wrapped up. Oh, well. If you can if you can add the C and the G, which are admittedly harder than all of those ones that you've learned so far, to your repertoire, um, you're probably gonna have to learn an F eventually. Uh, but the, and that's that's a sort of another level of hard above above G and C. But if you add G and C on there, you can basically do anything. So let's just assume, and if you got a capo, let's just assume you can we we can play anything. Um, so I'm just gonna go ahead and say. Think about things by that Icelandic group that should have won um, Eurovision this year, but didn't because Eurovision didn't happen. Because that's a really sweet and fun song. I feel like not all uh, of Malcolm's family is going to pre know the song that should have won Eurovision this year, except that Eurovision was canceled. Now, I happen to know it because you've watched the YouTube video so many times that it's my number one recommended video every time I log on to YouTube. <laughs> I was thinking something a little more classic, like, mm. for instance, Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On. No, that's perfect, John. You really hit the nail right on the head there. That's what the family wants to hear. <laughs> what about... What or about, If You uh, Seek Amy by, um, <laughs> by, by Britney Spears. <laughs> that's actually a really, really fun song to play on the guitar. Not that I know because right. I play it on the guitar all the time, but it is really fun. So uh, if you want to, uh, my my under, my experience of learning instruments is that um, is that the you have to find good, fun songs to play and then you get better because it's fun to learn. Um, so I do want to recommend that one to you. It might not be appropriate for your whole family. I have an actual recommendation. Mm-hmm. In fact, I have what I believe to be the only actual recommendation, which is that you okay. play Smash Mouth's All-Star. Oh, of course. <laughs> oh, God. That's the only song I know all the lyrics of. Yeah. I mean, you're going to have to learn C uh, and G and A minor. But look, A minor is super easy. You basically already know it because you know E. Um, and G and C, you're going to have to get at some point anyway. But the nice thing about All Star is that it, like, the chord progression does not change through the whole song. It is the same in the chorus. It's the same in the verses. You just do the same thing over and over again, and you good. Okay, Hank, this next question, let's say, uh, let's answer this authorial intent question. This next question comes from Maxine, who asks, Dear Hank and John, has being writers affected your opinion of authorial intent in any way? Do you two see eye to eye on the subject, or do you have different opinions? Not particularly mad, Maxine. I think we do have somewhat differing opinions, John. Somewhat, although I have moderated my opinion in the last Mm. few years. So when I was in high school, I thought that authorial intent was extremely important and that when my English teachers were slaughtering these books by making us hyperanalyze them, they were dishonoring the authors who didn't intend any of this stuff anyway. And so what does it matter? you know, that the green light across the bay represents who's he what, or that the white, mm-hmm. that you know, the white whale represents the terrifying blank whiteness of, of uh, nature's indifference to human endeavors, etc. That was my, like, number one, pretty fairly standard, pretentious high school student thing. Mm-hmm. And then, as often <laughs> happens to me, Hank, um, mm-hmm. I staked out the most radical opposite position I possibly could. <laughs> you know, I, I, I went from like, right. I tweet 400 times a day 
to Twitter is bad for the social order and I will never use it again, except one day I might break, go on sports Twitter for 12 hours and then quit again. Mm -hmm. So I adopted the belief and very loudly, I might add, that books belong to their readers and that authorial intent is completely irrelevant. It does not matter whether... Herman Melville intended Moby Dick, although he obviously did. It, it doesn't matter if Herman Melville intended Moby Dick to be a, a metaphor for nature's indifference to us. That's what Moby Dick is. And that what makes a book good is its readers. And mm-hmm. I still largely believe that. Like, I still believe that readers reading a book generously can make it better And I also believe, for the record, that readers reading a book ungenerously uh, can keep the book from becoming the best or most useful version of itself. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to, like, say that readers aren't important. But I I now think that that the author, especially now, especially in the 21st century, the author's in the book whether you want to be or not. And this is something I didn't understand for a long time. And my books changed when I began to understand it. And I think the first time that you see me understanding it at all is in The Fault in Our Stars, where there's a character who's a writer. And, you know, I was aware by that point that people were reading my biography into my novels, which was something that, like, in my early books, I couldn't have imagined, because how are people going to know my biography? Right. And then in, in Turtles All the Way Down, that went yet another step further, where, like, the author is, you know, in some ways, like, you know, can be constructed as a, as a few of the different characters in the book. And yeah, so I think authorial intent is not totally irrelevant. It is still a little uncomfortable for me, and I, I'm not here to tell anybody else what to do, but it's still a little uncomfortable for me when I hear writers make big pronouncements about their mm-hmm. books that are outside the text. Like, I do not feel comfortable commenting mm-hmm in an authoritative yep. way on anything outside the text. Right. Uh, I, I feel the same way, and it's it's very interesting. It is very similar to writing a song, where I don't... It's, it's a very big deal to change the lyrics to a song after it's on an album or has been released in some way. And I think it's very interesting when artists do that. Like, when I go to a live show and I like and they say different lyrics than the ones that are on the album, I think, like... That's like a very intentional and sort of big decision. Whereas changing the lyric before it gets recorded is like, you do that constantly. Like that's that's like an everyday occurrence as you're recording an album. Like you're still working on the songs basically up until they're recorded. Very much the same with a book. And then like the text is locked um, and you theoretically will never change anything in the book again. And, and almost like can't because you want everyone to be talking about the same text. Um, but there are some things in my work that like I do know and have known the whole time that I think are interesting to to have an answer to when someone asks like what is what is that like why wasn't that discussed or you know wh- what what are what are those people like actually thinking about in that moment but you didn't put it in the book and like I didn't put it in intentionally because like during the book experience, it's important, but but you do you feel know, like, like you know you know the I truth know the of answer. what, and and you you feel yeah. you feel like you can answer. Yeah, it's very weird. Uh, it was very weird to have like my editor um, talking to me about like you know a- asking questions about the book 
that I like I was like, well, obviously it's this. And but like, of course, it's only obvious to me. And because like I have all these like I have a lot of this stuff sort of like written out in a in a, you know, explanation to myself so that I can make sure I don't mess things up that aren't in the book, but are reflective of the the reality they're in. And I feel like sort of more comfortable talking about all that stuff. And I well, I I will once the second book is out, because like a lot of that stuff was designed to inform the second book. Yeah, I think it's somewhat different when it's a series. And mm-hmm. I also right. think it's different yeah. writer to writer. And of course, part of why I don't feel comfortable with my previous kind of radical position on authorial intent is that I don't know what works for other people. Like, <laughs> I don't even really know what works for me. I, I only know yeah. what what is kind of working for me right now creatively. And yeah, I'm not. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm over the days of making grand pronouncements about about that stuff because I have entered an age of profound uncertainty in my life, and I I, I hope to be uh, to be able to remain in this place of uncertainty for the rest of my life because even though it's uncomfortable, it feels more accurate, I guess, or it feels more true to me. I'm trying, insofar as possible, to stay in the uncertainty these days. Yeah. And that's hard in a world that is sort of like asking for, for certainty a lot. Yeah, of course. Um, And, and there are times, you know, there are times when it is really important to make declarative statements. Uh, but yeah, for me right now, there are some things I think I know, but there's a lot I don't know. Um, and there's a, there's a lot I still have to learn. So I'm trying to I'm trying to get comfortable with that so that I can get learning instead of constantly being defensive and acting like I already know when I don't. Which reminds me that today's podcast is brought to you by Everything John Doesn't Know. Everything John Doesn't Know, <laughs> almost everything. Uh, speaking of which, this podcast is also brought to you by 68 million. 68 million, the actual shoe size of Italy, now that I realize that there's four sizes per inch not one size per inch because I didn't know that until just now. It depends on your measuring system. Sure. They do it differently in Europe. They do. Also, and I guess probably it would be the European size probably. if it was an Italian boot. But also today's podcast is brought to you by a size eight and a half black leather boot, which is the actual real Italy boot. That's what they call it. They call it the Italy boot because it has the same dimensions as Italy, just Mm. a little shrunk. And of course, this podcast is additionally brought to you by the letter H. The letter (laughs) H. That's it. That's all you get. That's all you get. I'm very busy. (laughs) (laughs) I just dashed off this 800-word email. (laughs) This episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by ZocDoc. Look, There are, I think it's fair to say, some imperfections in the American healthcare system, but there are ways that it actually has recently gotten easier. I don't compromise on a lot of things, but I do not love feeling like I can't find the right doctor for me. And I've gotten very lucky that I have found some good doctors for me. When it comes to your health, there shouldn't be compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor who uses your appointment to catch up on the latest headlines slash their family group chat slash their crossword puzzles just because they're available right now or they happen to take your insurance. Instead, like you don't have to keep going back to a doctor who you don't like. You can check out ZocDoc, a place where you can find and book doctors who make you feel comfortable, who listen to you, who prioritize your health. 
and you can search by location, availability, and insurance type. So literally no compromises, because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you think. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately. No more phone calls and waiting on hold with a receptionist. We don't have time for this anymore. And these doctors all have verified reviews from actual, real patients. Booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. The typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even sometimes score same-day appointments. Go to ZocDoc.com slash DearHank and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then you can book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot slash DearHank. ZocDoc.com slash DearHank. Every time I know it's coming and I'm like, I'm going to have to say ZocDoc.com right now, aren't I? And then I do. I'm getting good at it, everybody. (laughs) ZocDoc.com. And you know I just dashed it off because H. (laughs) This next question comes from Anonymous, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I'm an opera singer and I'm beginning to realize that I'm extremely driven in my life and career because I constantly crave attention and love when people are impressed by me. I'm worried because sometimes I think my love of attention might be bigger than my love for the music. And I'm not sure if that's a sustainable motivation for a long-term career. In opera, you're in your prime by 35 to 45, so you need to be in it for the long run if you're to be serious. I've tried to change my ways, but it's hard. Should I just be okay with this, or is it a sign that I should change my path? Ella afui la anonymous. That was some really good French. I thought that was going to be Italian, and so I started out feeling it was going to be Italian. You know, and it could be. Ella afui la Torturelle. It appears to be French. Here's the thing. When I was a kid, I wasn't good at much as a student. I was not a very good student. But I was told that I was good at writing stories. And I really liked that. I really liked being told that. I liked the approval of adults, especially because I didn't get it in a lot of other times from my, my teachers. And I liked, you know getting to ride in the big yellow school bus to Tampa, Florida, because I won an elementary school creative writing contest. Mm -hmm. That's why I liked writing. Like, realistically. Yeah. You know, I I liked writing because adults told me that I was good at it and I just wanted to be good at something. Right. I mean, and I did like reading and I did like, you know, and I did like telling stories. Right. And I had an affinity for it. But... I the idea that passion is somehow pure to the thing that like a, has a, to be a yeah. professional football player is successful primarily because of some deep love for placing a sphere inside of a net. Mm-hmm. I I think that's just an oversimplification. I agree. And and I also think that it is it's kind of like a dangerous idea that like if you're doing it for the wrong reason, stop doing it. But like we're all out here searching for meaning, right? And you know, um, continual like continuing on a process of mastery is a way of getting meaning, and uh, receiving praise from outside is a way of getting meaning as well. Um, so I don't think it's I think it's fine, be, but especially because like and, and if you can drill down and and like find those specifics of what is interesting and what is good about a performance or a piece of music or you know an entire like entire opera 
which is not something I know anything about. <laughs> I mean, no. In fact, there's nothing I know less about. <laughs> I disagree. Mm. Name a field I, I, I know less about. Um, I know more about quantum mechanics for sure. Well, there. I mean, there's all kinds of fields that we don't know anything about because no one knows anything about them, John. And that, for me, is opera. <laughs> <laughs> but who knows? Maybe in the second half of my life, I'll become a big opera fan. I do like some rock operas. <laughs> Did you know that Smash Mouth's All-Star is a part of a rock opera, John? Yeah, of course it is. I haven't finished writing it yet, but... <laughs> <laughs> That was a good joke. That that was that, honestly that joke made me happier than any joke has in several weeks. It was well set up. It was kind of a dad joke, but it was very well set up. And then I tried to yes and you, and then you hit me from a totally unexpected direction, and I and I greatly enjoyed it. No, uh, thank you for thank you. I mean, that's the kind of approval that I deeply deeply need. So I thank you. <laughs> All I've done now is encourage Hank to tell more bad jokes. <laughs> All right, this next question comes from Raiden, who writes, Dear John and Hank, John often talks about AFC Wimbledon having the smallest stadium in the league. I've been wondering for a while, what does stadium size have to do with the quality of the football played? Great question, this is, Raiden. This is a great question, and, and I have been too afraid to ask. So thank you. So if you're playing in the Premier League, and you're on TV every Saturday in like 175 countries, most of the revenue your team gets is mm. from TV rights. And that's true for mm -hmm. most sports. But if mm -hmm. you're in the third tier of English football or the fourth tier, almost all of the, the revenue you get is match day revenue. So it's people coming to people coming to the stadium on the match day they pay for their uh -huh. tickets maybe they buy a pie or two maybe they they purchase a pint a of pie? beer yeah they have you like can those, buy a pie they have like those meat pies you know oh that's even better yeah, oh yeah you should really go to an afc wimbledon game hank anyway well i mean you know in the future uh anyway that's where most of the revenue comes from ticket sales concession sales, etc. Mm -hmm. If you have mm -hmm. a small ground, and AFC Wimbledon until now has had the smallest stadium in professional English football, it's impossible to maximize, like it's impossible to compete with people who are selling two or three times as many tickets. Now, AFC Wimbledon sell out almost all of their games, but that means that they sell 4,800 tickets. A team like Swindon Town, for instance, has a stadium that seats 12 or 13,000 people. Now, they're not going to sell that oh, out, wow. but they're going to sell 8,000, 9,000 tickets a week. They're going to have twice as much money. And so that has been one of the huge limiters of AFC Wimbledon's growth. And really, it's an incredible success story with a stadium so small to have found a way through sponsorship revenue and through the membership model that AFC Wimbledon uses. So it's it's equally owned by all of its fans. All of those strategies have allowed Wimbledon to kind of compete above their level for the last few years. But Hank, and this is a nice transition to the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon, all of that is changing because now <laughs> Wimbledon are going home to their historic place 
back to Plow Lane, back to Wimbledon. It is the final chapter of this 20-year saga to get a football league team back where it belongs. And just in the last few days, the final approval for the final last piece of construction happened um, on the new stadium. The new stadium will seat, I think, around 9,000 people to start, but it has the potential to grow up to 15 or even 18,000 people, which is what a pre- some Premier League mm. clubs have. Wow. And in order for this to happen, especially given the circumstances, you know, construction has slowed, uh, everything is f- uncertain at the moment, somebody had to come in at the last second and make a significant investment in the club. And somebody did that. Um, It's a guy named Nick, and his investment in the club does not affect the ownership structure of the club at all. So the ownership structure of the club is still, it's 75% owned uh, by the Don's Trust. Everybody who pays 25 pounds a year gets to be a member of the Don's Trust. So he just came in and generously invested in the club as thousands of other people have done over the last few months to get the stadium built, but he did it on a bigger scale and made it possible. So it's happening. And I am so relieved and excited. I mean, to people who care about this football club, in many ways, this is more important than getting back into the football league, than getting a promotion. This this is is the end of the story. This is you know, it it took 20 years, but they got back home. You know, I, I, I've told you yeah. this before, Hank, but Wimbledon fans, ever since they were forced to move out of Plow Lane, their old stadium, their stadium for over 100 years, they were forced to move out of it. And they've been singing a song called Show Me the Way to Plow Lane that goes, I'm tired and I want to go home. I had a football ground 30 years ago and I want one of my own. And they have shown the world the way to Plow Lane. And it just makes me so proud to be a Wimbledon supporter and fan and sponsor and so grateful to the thousands of people who have worked together to make this happen. And meanwhile, at the same time, the AFC Wimbledon Foundation continues to do just tremendously important work in COVID-19 response around South London. And I'm so grateful to all the volunteers who are making that happen it um, it's just very heartening at a time when I need that. Yeah. Well, uh, in in Mars news, there's there's two two things that I want to talk about. First, of course, the uh, SpaceX uh, first crewed flight went up to the space station. It yeah. happened, and that that is a step on the way to more uh, and further space exploration. So that's very exciting. Oren was over the moon about it. He wants to watch the video all the time. <laughs> and I don't really even understand why, because it's not, like, it's a good video, but like, like we've looked at lots of rocket ship videos, but he's really stuck on this one. Um, I think he kind of gets it, which is touching for me. Um, and, uh, but then also in sort of more direct Mars news, just to talk a little bit about perseverance, there's a bunch of instruments and experiments on the rover, including these two. And this is all going to make sense at the end. Uh, scanning habitable environments with Raman and luminescence for organics and chemicals. And then there's the wide-angle topographic sensor for operations and engineering. 
Uh, both of those are really good terrible names. names. Really, but then really if you, bad if names. You shorten them. They are Sherlock and Watson. Oh. So boom, take that. Yeah, I so. mean, but I, this is a long-standing issue I have with the <laughs> initialists of the world and a- acronymizers yeah. of the world. Like, uh-huh. why not give the thing its clearest name? Yeah, I don't know. It's, I mean, scanning habitable environments with Raman and luminescence for organics and chemicals is bad. Um, but <laughs> the, the, the experiments uh, scope out the rocks, basically. Um, Sherlock uh, is going to like measure how light scatters off of stuff to measure the chemical composition of things, um, figure out what minerals and organic compounds are inside Martian rocks, and that might give us clues into the possibility of ancient Martian microbes. Whereas Watson is a camera that takes pictures of all the rocks that Sherlock is going to be learning about. And that, that actually feels pretty true to the Sherlock-Watson relationship. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Watson sort of is uh, watching and documenting. And then, uh, and also Sherlock is going to be doing experiments on five samples of different potential spacesuit and helmet materials Mm. that are being sent along with uh, Perseverance and Sherlock is going to be measuring how they do over time and exposed to the Martian elements. Mm. It's pretty cool. cool. I'm very excited for Perseverance. Me too. I need that thing to get off the ground and on its way to Mars ASAP. Yeah. Well, John, thank you for potting with me this week. Thank you. It's always a joy to talk to you. Yeah. You're, I'm glad that, that you're my brother. Same. Really glad. Um, this podcast is edited by Joseph Tuna Medish. It's produced by Rosiana Hals Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. Our communications coordinator is Paula Garcia Prieto. The music you're hearing now is by the Great Gunnarola. And as we say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to be awesome. awesome.